Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Markets were very, very weak today. Uh, you know, we surrendered a lot of the gains uh, that we had yesterday. In fact, all of the gains, most stocks anyway. And, you know, one of the interesting things about yesterday's rally, and I didn't really have a, co- a, a chance to comment on it yesterday because I didn't do a podcast. But one of the things I noticed, a particularly weak point, an Achilles heel in yesterday's rally were the financials. I mean, the financials were noticeably uh, not participating in the rally. They were very weak all day. And the financials are really key to the U.S. economy. Unfortunately, I mean, it's they shouldn't be the key, but they are because we have a bubble economy. We have an economy based on credit, based on debt, right? So not people spending the money they earned, but spending the money they didn't earn, but that they borrowed. And what is at the heart of the bubble, other than the Federal Reserve, which is pumping all the blood right into the body of the economy, but it's pumping it through the heart of the banking sector. So when you're seeing this cardiac arrest right in the banking sector, this is a, a sign right that tr- there's trouble brewing here when the banks are having so much trouble. And again, why are the banks in particularly uh, difficult shape right now because people are defaulting on their loans. Obviously, if people aren't earning as much money as they were when they were working, especially small businesses, uh, they're not paying their loans. And so the banks are not getting uh, interest payments. They're getting defaults, but also collateral. Right, the value of the collateral behind the collateralized loans. Now, a lot of the loans aren't collateralized at all if they're credit card debt. Uh, you know, and I thought it was ironic too, uh, because I think it was yesterday. Um, I was listening to Jamie Dimon was talking about the the earnings that they had. I guess they were b- bad earnings. We had more earnings today that were bad from the banks, but he actually kind of mentioned the fact that a lot of people weren't paying their credit card bills, a lot of the bank's customers. But then he said, but of course, there are some people who are actually earning more money now on unemployment than they were when they were working. And so uh, Diamond was a little optimistic that at least that segment of the population would keep paying their credit card bills because they were actually making more money. In fact, they may actually go out and spend more now that they're earning more uh, being unemployed, which of course, you know, made me think that, you know, these bailouts 
are just another backdoor bank bailout because the government is borrowing money, right, which is the world's biggest debtor, but the government is borrowing money uh, to give it to consumers or individuals who are in debt, and then they turn around and hand the money to the banks. So that the banks are actually getting uh, these unemployment benefits. It's just they're going through the unemployed first, but it's you know ultimately ending up in the pockets of the banks. So it's a, it's a backdoor way of, of bailing out the banks. But my point is that when you have a credit bubble, right, when the economy is built on a foundation of debt, and then something happens to shake that foundation, you have a big problem. And the fact that the banks are selling off, and they were, again, among the weakest stocks today, right? The market closed off the lows. The Dow was down, was it 445? I think on the lows, it was down six or 700. But look at where the banks closed. The banks closed almost on the lows of the day, right? They didn't have any bounce. These stocks technically look the weakest. In fact, I think that the banks are going to be one of the first sectors to make new lows, to take out the March lows. In fact, if you look at that regional banking index, I was talking about that index. It was down six and three quarters percent today. It's now down about 45 percent so far this year. Right. I mean, this is a huge drop in these regional banks and the banking sector, again, is particularly vulnerable. That's why I said from day one that this is a financial crisis. Everybody was denying that it was a financial crisis. Oh, no, no, it's not a financial crisis. We're just shutting down the economy. Okay, but if you shut down the economy, how do all the people with debt pay their debt? And if the debt isn't being paid, then by definition, you have a financial crisis. That's why the real estate crisis was a financial crisis. It wasn't because real estate prices went down. It's because real estate prices going down meant loans that were collateralized by real estate weren't getting repaid. And to the extent that the banks had to foreclose, the collateral wasn't there to make the banks whole. The same thing is happening now. Right? The banks are even more exposed today than they were in 2008. This is an even bigger crisis now than it was in 2008 because we have a lot more debt. We have a lot more borrowers who are in trouble. And on top of all that, on top of all the borrowers who are in trouble because of these shutdowns, homeowners are going to have the same problems. Because real estate prices are about to crash. I'm going to get to that in a little later in the podcast because I'm going to go over some more data and I'm going to circle back to the real estate market. But this is a much, much bigger financial crisis than the one we had in 08. And one of the indications of that is the Fed's response. The Fed is doing everything it did during the last financial crisis, except way bigger and way sooner, right? So if they're doing all the same stuff, only they're having to do more of it. They're having to do it in even greater excess. Then what does that tell you? That tells you this is a financial crisis, just like the last one, except it's bigger. It's a worse financial crisis. And, you know, a lot of people are getting confused uh, or maybe, they again, they can't see the forest for the trees when they keep talking about the fact that, well, you know, this is all self-inflicted. This isn't a real recession or it's not a real depression. I mean, it, we just decided uh, to stay home. We decided not to go to work. So it's not like, you know, businesses are closing uh, because the economy was bad. We just decided to shut everything down. And so it's not, we don't have to worry about it because we could just decide 
to open everything back up again. Now, apart from the fact that it's not that simple, we just can't make that decision. And even if we could, consumers are not necessarily going to behave the way they did before the virus right away after the virus, even even if they want to. They're not going to have the resources uh, to do it. And also, I think that this event is really like a wake-up call for a lot of people. Like, hey, you need some savings. You know, you can't live like this. People have been borrowing and borrowing and spending and spending like there's no consequence. Like, you know, it's never going to rain. So I don't need a rainy day fund. This was a wake-up call for a lot of people that you need to start saving your money. And of course, you know, a lot of people who were counting on the stock market to provide their savings for their retirement, well, now they've seen a big drop in the value of their retirement. Remember, you know, look at the Russell 2000 is down over 35%. A lot of people have a lot of these small stocks and and they're getting killed. And a lot of these higher yielding closed end funds have been decimated, right? They're down a lot more. It's not like everybody has their entire retirement in Netflix and, and, and Amazon. I mean, again, I talked about those two stocks on my last podcast. They both made new all-time record highs today. Even with the market down, these stocks are going up. I mean, hey, the fact that people are taking refuge in these stocks, right? There's no safety in these stocks, right? And as I've been saying, we are not going to see a real uh, short-term nominal low, a bottom in this market until they take those leaders out behind the barn and shoot them. People in Amazon and Netflix aren't going to get off scot-free. They're not going to miss this bear market like it didn't even happen. So at some point, I think when we finally do make a low, it's going to be when these stocks really go down as well. But my point is that people who are closer to retirement are now a lot further away than they were because their stock portfolio has just taken a big hit. These people are going to have to save more money. So even the people that go back to work, they're not going to go back to spending to the same degree as they were before. And of course, a lot of the people aren't going to go back to work because their employers aren't coming back. And again, I'm going to talk more about that again later. But the point is that to expect that just when we turn this economy back on, like we turn a key and say, okay, everybody go back to work, that everybody's going back. They're not. The bubble popped. This bubble is not going to reflate just because somebody decides that we can all come out of our houses and we don't have to, uh, you know, social distance or self-quarantine, whatever that is. It's it's not going to happen. But again, the other thing that people are 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 missing is they is when they say that this wound is self-inflicted. Who cares? It doesn't matter that the wound is self-inflicted. What matters is that we got a wound. Look. If I grab a knife and I stab myself in the chest, you know, I mean, I'm not okay because I, the wound is self-inflicted. I can't, hey, doc, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I did it to myself. It doesn't matter how I got stabbed. The, what matters is I got a knife in my chest and I'm bleeding, right? And so I can't ignore the wound just because I was dumb enough to stab myself. And, you know, if I was going to stab myself, I didn't have to do it in the heart. I mean, that's what we did here with uh, the our reaction to the uh, coronavirus, not simply all the stay-at-home orders and, and all this stuff. And I, again, I thought, and I still think we've overreacted. Uh, not that I'm saying that we shouldn't do something, uh, but I don't think we had to do what we did. But apart from that, 
It's what the Fed is doing, right? The Fed's monetary policy is far more destructive, far more toxic. This is making the economy much sicker than the virus or even everybody staying at home. The biggest mistakes that we're making are at the Federal Reserve and, of course, at Congress. All the stimulus money, all the spending. As I've said many times, when the economy is in trouble and it's weakened, the best thing the government can do to help is to cut spending, is to ease the burden, right? I mean, let's say you're you're running a race and you've got a, a, a backpack on and it's full of weights. And all of a sudden, you know, you're getting tired. You're having a hard time running. What would be the right thing to do? Maybe take some of the weights out of your backpack, right? Because if you're being weighed down by these weights and you're getting tired and you want to run faster or longer, maybe take some of the weights off your back. And, and that would help you out. But what the government wants to do is load the runner up with even more weights. They shove additional weight into that backpack because we have to support government spending. Again, you have to remember government has no money. doesn't matter that they have a printing press because they can't print uh, purchasing power. That has to be created into existence in the private sector. All the government can do is redirect who gets to purchase what the private sector produces, but the government doesn't produce anything. So they can redistribute wealth, but they can't create it. And so when the government is spending more, it is increasing the burden that it places on the private sector. Now we already have a big enough burden dealing with the coronavirus, dealing with all the shutdowns to have to shoulder the additional weight of all this government spending is what's really hurting the economy. So everybody that's dismissing all the bad news or the problem because they think it's self-inflicted is missing the bigger picture of not only the problem and the financial crisis, because again, if I stab myself, doesn't matter. We have a debt bubble. Now everybody is defaulting on their loans. It doesn't matter why they're defaulting. All that matters is that they defaulted. And you know, the cat's out of the bag now. It's gone. It's over. The bubble has popped, and now we are dealing with the consequences, not just of the virus, but of the consequences of the bubble. In fact, we're dealing with the consequences of the bubble that popped in 2008. We're dealing with the consequences of the bubble that popped in 2001 because we never finished dealing with them because the Fed kicked the can down the road, and we've caught up to that can. And now we have to deal with all of the bad consequences of repeated bubbles that are now blowing up. And now the Fed is, of course, trying to reflate this, but it is never going to work. And, you know, a real wake-up call came today. We got a whole slew of economic data that came out today. And it's almost like, you know, all this data is irrelevant because everybody knows, right, the data is going to be bad, right? So bad news doesn't surprise anybody because we're all expecting it, except one thing about all the bad news we got today, as bad as people thought it was going to be, each data point was even worse. I'm going to start off uh, with the retail sales numbers that came out this morning. So this is for March. So this is the beginning, although April sales are probably going to be worse than March, right? But here's the March numbers. So they were looking for down 7.3%. And that was following 
a small 0.5% decline, which under normal circumstances wouldn't be considered small. That would be considered pretty big. That was what happened in February. And that was actually revised down to 0.4, right? But they were looking for a drop of 7.3. Instead, we got a drop of 8.7% in retail sales. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And if you took out uh, autos, we dropped 4.5%. They were looking for a drop of 4.2%. This is a huge decline in retail sales. Now, the the 8.7% drop that we had, this was the biggest monthly drop ever recorded in retail sales. Worst one ever. And year over year, there was a 6.2% decline in retail sales. This is the biggest since March of 2009. And that was the end of the Great Recession. And we're just getting started, right? It took until the end of the Great Recession to have a decline this big. And we have a decline this big at the beginning of what is obviously going to be an even greater recession. And it doesn't matter why it started. None of that matters. Doesn't matter that we did it to ourselves. All that matters is that we did it and now it started, and this snowball is rolling down the hill, and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And not only we got the retail sales, we also got the Empire State Manufacturing uh, Survey. And last month was pretty bad, right? It was down 21.5%. That was a really, really bad number. And they were expecting a worse number uh, for April, uh, 35, minus 35 was supposed to be the read. Instead, we got minus 78.2. Now, to give you an idea of just how bad that number is, right, the expectations were from minus 26 to minus 60. So the worst that anybody thought possible was minus 60. And we got minus 78.2. So we exceeded even the worst possible estimate by anybody who follows this survey. And this is the the biggest miss in history, right? They were looking for minus 35 and we got minus 78.2. So that is the biggest miss ever. And it's also the, 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 the worst number ever in history. I'm not sure how long they've been doing the survey, but it's the worst one that they've ever done. And, you know, we're just getting started here. Now, we also got industrial production. Let me pull up those numbers again. So there, they were looking for 
minus 4.2%. And we ended up with minus 5.4. For manufacturing, they were looking for minus 4. We got minus 6.3%. These are big numbers. Capacity utilization was supposed to drop from 77 down to 74. Instead, it dropped down to 72.7. Now, this was the biggest monthly decline in uh, industrial production since January of 1946. January of 1946. You know what was going on in January of 1946? Factories were basically moving away from wartime production. They were shutting down production of ammunition, of tanks and bombers and all kinds of stuff like that. And they were re-gearing and retooling to convert back to peacetime production. And of course, that process started you know, in late 1945 when the war came to an end. And of course, this was all good news, right? The fact that factories didn't have to produce all these weapons, nobody was upset that industrial production was going down because you know, we weren't benefiting from that other than the fact that we were winning the war. Yes, we benefited in that all of our industrial might was helping us defeat uh, the Nazis and defeat uh, Imperial Japan, but it wasn't making our lives better. We weren't using that industrial capacity to make our lives better by producing consumer goods. We had to basically convert all that capacity from peacetime to wartime production. And while that was going on, here at home, people were having to do without things because all of the resources were being utilized for the war effort. So once the war was over, production came down and then it ramped back up again, right? And then they started producing stuff that we actually want that make our lives better. But that's not going to happen this time. This is not about factories just converting over from wartime to peacetime. I mean, this is, you know, we're who knows what we're going to start producing even again if we get the all clear, because a lot of these companies aren't going to be around. A lot of them were were, were kept afloat uh, based on cheap money, based on debt. And, you know, that's gone. Those those pillars are, are no longer there. Again, also, there was a 5.9% year-over-year decline in industrial production. And again, you've got to go all the way back to 2009, right? November 2009, uh, before you get a year-over-year decline that large. And again, that's because the year-over-year uh, we're comparing a year where we went through the Great Recession. And so all this economic data is now equivalent to or worse than what we were seeing during the Great Recession. But we got another number that came out today that was even worse than the Great uh, Recession. And that was home builder sentiment, right? Housing market index. And last month, it was at 72. And the expectation was that the number would come down to 60. Well, instead of 60, and oh, the range was from a high of 68, right? Somebody thought that, you know, sentiment would only go down to 68 from 72, right? This is in April, right? Despite all the bad news, people still thought that the home builders, uh, you know, weren't going to be that upset. The lowest estimate uh, was 53, right? So that's the worst anybody thought, right? And I'm not sure, you know, what economists or strategists are, you know, putting their their bets into the survey. Uh, but the lowest number that anybody had in the under was 53, right? That's the most bearish anybody got. The actual number was 30, 30, right? This is the lowest 
it's ever been. Again, I don't know how long they've been keeping these statistics, but since they started, it's never been worse. And that would include the bursting of the housing bubble. So home builders are more pessimistic about the future now than they were at any point during a financial crisis that actually started as a housing crisis. This didn't start as a housing crisis. But I think what's happening is the real estate builders now have a more realistic assessment of the future prospects for their businesses. In fact, if anything, I think they're still too optimistic. I think this number should be lower because I think that home building is pretty much going to stop. I mean, we're not going to be building any more homes because people can't even afford to buy the homes that already exist, let alone brand new ones, which are going to be even more expensive. And by the way, once the dollar tanks, the cost of constructing those uh, new homes is going to go up. In fact, it probably is. You probably have to pay hazard pay to the construction workers, or I'm not even sure what the new rules are going to be or uh, for allowing construction. So it's going to be very expensive and maybe not even practical to build new homes, even if people could afford them, which they can't. Meanwhile, the price of existing homes is going to be plunging. And again, I went over this on my last podcast. The lenders are really clamping down on lending standards, making it much harder for homeowners or potential home buyers to qualify for a mortgage. And they're requiring big down payments now, 20%. Who knows? Maybe some of them are going to start to want 25 or 30%. We'll see. But 20% is a big obstacle if you're buying a home in an expensive market, how many people have a 20% down payment in California? Not that many, especially if you're a first-time home buyer. So again, the only way that anybody is going to be able to afford to come up with the down payment is if the price of the house crashes so that now the money they have is big enough to equal 20% of what they're borrowing. Well, when the price of existing homes crash, who's going to build a new home? You're not going to be able to build a house for what people can buy the houses are. I already talked about that in Connecticut. And this is even before the coronavirus. I was looking through Zillow at the houses that were for sale in my neighborhood of Connecticut. And I know for a fact that you could not build any of these houses uh, for the cost that you could buy them for, even if you got the land for free. So if you got an acre of land, two acres of land, absolutely for free and then you built a house on it, you could not sell that house to get your money back on a construction. You can buy a house in Fairfield County, Connecticut for less than the cost to build it and you get the land for free. And that was before the coronavirus. So imagine this starts happening nationwide. Real estate prices fall so much that there is no way that anybody can build a house and get their money back when people can buy the houses that have already been built. And, you know, we would have corrected this problem a long time ago had the Federal Reserve allowed the housing bust to run its course naturally. We didn't do that. We came to the rescue, we propped everything up, and we continued to overbuild residential real estate. And now we have an even bigger bubble. We have an even bigger glut of supply. Uh, prices are going to come crashing down. We misallocated resources. We should have used them for something else. Instead, we built homes that we really shouldn't have built, uh, and we allowed people to buy them that really couldn't afford them. And so this whole thing is collapsing. And so that's why you're seeing home builder sentiment implode uh, the way it has. 
But again, if real estate prices are going to fall, which is what this index is telling you, because that's why the builders are so negative, because they can't build houses anymore, because they're not going to be able to sell them and get their money back, to let alone make a profit. This is another mortgage crisis in the making. Because as we know from experience, when people lose their equity, they stop making their mortgage payments. Why should they make a payment? They're non-recourse loans. Why are they just putting money in somebody else's pocket? Especially when you make it harder and harder for the banks to foreclose. So this is huge. That's why these banks are falling. That's why they're getting killed because this is a much bigger problem. And it's not about, hey, let's just solve the coronavirus. That's not going to do anything because the credit bubble happened before the coronavirus, right? And so now that bubble has popped, nothing else matters as, as when it comes to what we do next about that. Yes, I really hope that we could deal with corona, you know, virus or COVID-19. It'd be great if we can cure it, come up with a, with a vaccine or a cure or something like that. But there is no vaccine to cure what ails the economy. There is uh, no cure except the free market, except capitalism. And that's the one thing that we're not trying. Everything we're doing is more socialism, which I know is the root cause of the problem. It's like I said, you know, my example, I stab myself in the heart. And so I go to the doctor and what's his cure? He stabs me some more. He takes more knives and stabs all the other organs. Instead of renew, removing the knife that I, that I inflicted on myself, taking the knife out, he just starts stabbing me in different places. Like that's going to make make me better by having more, having more wounds. You know, I, I got to laugh. I, I didn't even realize this. I put out a tweet about it, but apparently Donald Trump decided to hold up some of these stimulus checks because he wanted his name to be written on a check because he wanted the voters when they got their check in the mail, when they opened it up to see the name Donald Trump, right? Like, like the check is for him. You know that, I mean, he's just trying to buy votes by making people think, see, look, I gave you some money. Look, if Donald Trump wants to have his name on the checks, then he should write the check himself, drawn on his own bank account. That's how his name should be on there. I mean, if Donald Trump wants the voters to see how generous he is, let him be generous with his money, not with somebody else's money, not with taxpayer money or money that's stolen from the population through inflation by the Fed. Anybody can be generous with somebody else's money. That's the easiest thing you could do is give money to, uh, that you took from other people and try to claim credit for it. I didn't even like that when, when uh, uh, Obama did that. Remember when we were spending all the stimulus money? They were putting all these signs up on the roads. You know, this is paid for by the stimulus. And, you know, all the politicians wanted you to know that all this spending, you know, was because of them, right? As if, oh, great. Like they have this pot of money that they're sharing with us. They don't have any money to share. All they have is money they stole. And now they're redistributing the loot uh, among the population, but they always steal more, right? That was a, an example I got from my dad, and I've mentioned it many times. Government aid is like trying to give yourself a blood transfusion from your left arm to your right arm, but then you spill half the blood on the floor, right? You're not better off, right? Government sucks out a lot of resources as it's redistributing uh, what it steals. It cuts itself in. Uh, for a pretty big, uh, big skim, right? And so everybody is made worse off. But of course, the government wants everybody to think uh, that they're better off. You know, there's a lot of talk too now again about 
the stimulus money and how it's going to be used. I mean, I was hearing a lot about, you know, the airline bailouts again and how all these airlines are getting all this money. And, you know, they're trying to figure out now, like, you know, what kind of cut the government should have, you know, what are the strings on the money? Uh, but, you know, everybody is, is thinking that this is a great thing that all these airlines are being kept afloat uh, by all this money. And it's not. I mean, what we need in the airline industry is the free market to right size the industry, because obviously there's too much debt and there's probably too much capacity in the airline industry. And so uh, we need less debt and we need to reduce capacity. And the government is preventing that from happening by bringing on additional debt and by paying the airlines not to reduce capacity. And, you know, the problem is even the airlines that didn't need the bailout money, they're getting it too because now their competitors are getting the money. So now, now they need it. Look, if we allowed a free market shakeout, the airlines wouldn't stop flying. The airlines wouldn't disappear, but the industry would restructure and the strongest airlines, the best managed airlines would thrive, would survive. They might merge or buy up some of the competition and you know we would have a better, stronger industry. Instead, we're propping up all the weak ones to allow them to compete with the stronger ones. We're punishing the stronger ones by rewarding uh, their weaker competitors who maybe took on too much debt or weren't run as efficiently. And now we're encouraging everybody uh, to be inefficient. Look, whenever the government gets involved in an industry, it screws it up. And of course, now that we've decided that we're going to socialize all the, all the losses, right? I mean, we started that precedent uh, during the financial crisis of 08 with the banks, right? You know, because they made a lot of money during the good times. And then uh, during the bad times, you know, they, you know, the government had to pick up the tab, the taxpayer, right? The taxpayers didn't get cut in for all the dividends and all the big bonuses that were being paid to the executives when times were good. But all of a sudden times go bad and we get stuck with the bill, right? So it's private profits and socialized losses. Well, here we are again, right? Losses have to be socialized. We can't let these companies fail, we need to socialize the losses. Look, once you get the public used to and accepting we should socialize the losses, you're not that far off from making the jump to socializing the profits, right? Because, hey, if we're going to share in the losses, why don't we share in the profits? And so what you're doing is destroying capitalism. You know, the road to serfdom, like the road to hell, is also paved with good intentions. And even if you consider that these are good intentions, I mean, some might say there's a more sinister motive to what's going on, but that's what we are doing. We are laying more bricks on this road to serfdom by saying that, yes, it's the right thing to do. We should socialize the, the losses. Okay, well, then we should socialize the profits. We should socialize everything. No, we should socialize nothing. If somebody makes money, they get to keep it. And if they lose money, then they lose it. I mean, you have to have the balance. Everybody wants to make money, but nobody wants to lose money. That's what keeps people from being reckless and taking too much of a risk is because even though they want to make money, they don't want to lose what they've already got. But if we stack the deck and we say, don't worry about losing, then people are going to gamble, right? If they don't think there's a downside, we need to preserve the downside in order to have the benefits of capitalism. And now once we destroy those benefits of capitalism, well, A, we don't even have capitalism, but now we've created a situation where um, the public is already in a mindset. We're already moving away 
uh, from the free market and we're moving at, towards socialism. You know, I, I pointed out also on Twitter today, and of course, this is nothing new uh, for this crisis, but all these government loans to the airlines and to individual small businesses, all of these loans are unconstitutional. There is nothing in the Constitution that says the federal government can loan money. What it does say in the Constitution, in Article 1, Section 8, right, and that is where all of the powers uh, granted to the federal government exist, right? The Constitution, if you didn't know, and you can read the Tenth Amendment, and it makes it clear, but the Constitution is uh, written in, in two ways. It denies powers to the states. So the states can do whatever the Constitution doesn't prohibit them from doing. Now, that doesn't mean the states can do whatever they want because the states are limited by their own state constitutions. But as far as the federal constitution is concerned, it tells the states what they can't do, right? It denies the states the ability to do certain things. And then where the constitution is silent, the states have that power unless it's been precluded by their own state constitutions. It's very different when it comes to the federal government. The federal government only has those powers that are specifically enumerated in Article 1, Section 8, right? They have to be granted the power. And if it's not specifically granted, then they don't have it, right? That's why the Constitution uh, is one of limited powers to the federal government. The, the powers are clearly enumerated and well-defined in the Constitution. So if you want to know what the federal government can do constitutionally, take Article 1, Section 8, and read what it can do. And if it's not in there, it can't do it, which is most of the stuff that it's doing. Well, one of the things that is there, it says that Congress shall have the right to borrow money on the credit of the United States. So the U.S. government is authorized to borrow money. It can do that. It's in the Constitution. There is nothing in the Constitution that says it could lend money. I mean, don't you think that if the founding fathers wanted the U.S. government to make loans, they would have written it in there. I mean, they thought it was important enough to write that they could borrow money. I mean, people want to think, well, they could do whatever they want. Well, if they could do whatever they want, why did they have to write that Congress can borrow money? I mean, after all, if they could do whatever they wanted, why even put it in there? Well, the reason they had to put it in there is because if they didn't put it in there, Congress couldn't do it. And they wanted the government to be able to borrow money in case there was an emergency, maybe there was a war, something happened. And so they wanted to give the government the authority to borrow money. That authority wasn't somehow implied in some elastic clause or the necessary and proper clause. They had to write it in there because if they didn't say Congress can borrow money, they couldn't do it. So they wrote it in. Now, obviously, if they know about borrowing, they know about lending. They wanted the government to be able to borrow money. They did not want the government to be able to lend money. If they did, they would have written it in there. In fact, it probably would have been the very next line in the Constitution, right? It would have been, you know, Congress has the right to borrow money. Boom, Congress has the right to lend money, right? That would be right there, right? Borrow, lend. It would make sense. It would be the very next thing. It is nowhere to be found. And not only doesn't Congress have the power to lend money, it doesn't have the power to guarantee somebody else's loan. So all this stuff is unconstitutional. Everything the government is doing with loans and loan guarantees, none of this is authorized by the Constitution, and it's all unconstitutional. And it's unfortunate that our judiciary is not doing its job. It's supposed to be a check and balance against 
the legislative and the executive branch, when they are operating outside of their constitutional authority, they're supposed to shut that down. And they've totally uh, failed the American public uh, by allowing the government to usurp all these powers. Also, I want to talk again about um, the individual uh, bailout money, right? The loans, the unconstitutional loans that really amount to grants that are being given to all these small businesses. Now, of course, the government is being inundated with applications for these loans. And it's like, it seems like it's surprising people that so many people want the money. I mean, why? I mean, if you put out a sign, free money, why would you be surprised at how many people show up to get the free money? I mean, everybody wants this free money. I mean, who wouldn't want it, right? Because, I mean, most of it, you don't have to pay it back. I mean, the government is handing out, I mean, some people, you get up to $10 million. I mean, why wouldn't you want that money? So everybody is trying to get the money and they feel like, you know, even if I'm not technically entitled to it, I got to get my piece of the action because everybody else is getting it. So I got to get something. Otherwise, I'm paying the cost, right? I'm paying for it somehow. So I need to get my share. So everybody wants their share of the money. That's why the government is burning through it and they're going to want some more. But again, the misguided nature of the money is in order to not have to repay the money, one of two things have to happen. Either you don't fire your workers, right? Now, maybe firing workers is the only way to be solvent. The only way for these businesses to really stay afloat is to hunker down and reduce their payroll. Well, if they don't do that, well, then they, they, they're going to fail where they may have ridden out the storm and now they're going to fail. And the government is encouraging that. But the other way that you don't have to repay the loan is if you just go out of business which a lot of people are going to do. And this is another moral hazard. Some businesses that may have succeeded will simply go shut down just to avoid having to repay the loans, right? They can always start a brand new business debt-free because there's no collateral and there's no guarantee. But another problem is, and especially like take an example of restaurants, right? A lot of restaurants go out of business. I mean, I think more restaurants fail than succeed which is why restaurants are very risky, right? People open up restaurants and you never know. I mean, the public doesn't like it, whatever happens. I mean, restaurants are a tough business, right? I mean, some people succeed very well, but it's very risky. A lot of restaurants just don't make it. And uh, so there's a lot of restaurants that are going to fail uh, this year, you know, that might've failed anyway, even if there was never uh, COVID-19, even if nothing bad happened, these restaurants were going to go out of business. Well, these restaurants are going to get the same bailout money as the restaurants that were that were going to stay in business. Everybody gets a check. They're not determining. Well, you were going to fail anyway. Not everybody gets the money. In fact, the, the the restaurants that already had too much debt, they have an easier time getting the money because you know the easier, uh, the better relationship you have with an existing bank. That's you get the money quicker. So if you already have a big loan, if you already maxed out a line of credit with a bank you know, you're right at the, at the front of the line to get more money. The bank doesn't give a damn if you could pay it back because it's government money, right? They're, they're, they can't lose. They got a sure thing. Uh, so as long as they know you, they're going to push this loan through. So I think what's going to happen is a lot of businesses that we're going to fail anyway are just going to take the money and then they're going to fail. They're not going to hire their employees. They're going to keep the money. They're not going to have to pay it back because they're going to shut down. And of course, a lot of these businesses that might have succeeded, but for the coronavirus, now they're going to fail. I mean, a lot of the marginal guys that were barely making it, this is a big shakeout because we were so overextended. 
because the economy was so vulnerable, so levered up. Uh, you know, so there's so much malinvestment. It was all being held together. It was all a gigantic debt pyramid. Anything could have popped it. Anything, the smallest of pins could have popped this bubble. Instead, you know, we got, you know, the, the, the biggest pin, we got, you know, the Everest of pins that came along. You're right. It wasn't just anything. It was this coronavirus and more importantly, the way we responded to it that that pricked the bubble. And so now, again, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, all the air is coming out and we are making this much, much worse. Right. If you thought the recovery that followed the 2008 financial crisis was bad. And it was. It was the weakest recovery we've ever had, despite uh, massive government stimulus. In fact, it wasn't despite massive government stimulus. It was because of massive government stimulus. Had we not had any government stimulus, we would have had a deeper decline initially, but then we would have come out of it stronger and healthier. So we would have had a much better recovery had we had a worse recession uh, at the beginning. Well, this recession would already be much, much worse, right? Imagine, right? Imagine what would be happening right now if we weren't getting all this free bailout money, right? It would certainly be a lot worse in the short run, but we would be laying the foundation for a much stronger, much more vibrant recovery, right? After we turned the corner. So as weak as the recovery was, the phony recovery from the last recession, the phony recovery from this one, I don't even think anyone's going to confuse it with a recovery. It's either going to be a recession or a depression. And the blame, once again, is going to be laid on the Republicans. It is going to be laid on uh, Trump. Yes, he's going to try to deflect the blame and blame it on the coronavirus. Uh, but I don't know that it's going to work because, again, the election is going to come down to who can outpromise, right? Which political party can outbid the other political party with free stuff. In other words, the race is going to come down to a Democrat versus a Democrat. That's it. And the problem is, right, when you give uh, the voters a choice between two Democrats, they're going to pick the Democrat every time. And I'm talking the real Democrat, which is going to be Joe Biden and not the rhino, uh, which is going to be uh, Donald Trump. And, and, and in fact, the, the Democrat is actually now the socialist and even the Republican is the socialist. It's simply the degree to which they have embraced socialism. Right. The Republicans only want to embrace part of socialism and the Democrats want to embrace it all. And I think rather than going halfway, the voters are going to say, let's just do uh, the whole thing. Right. It can't get any worse than this. So why just do it half-assed? If socialism is good, then it's good. If socialism is good when times are bad, then maybe it's even better when times are good. And in fact, if we had socialism, maybe times would never be bad. They just always be good.